Shalom and welcome again to another edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I am Rabbi Richard Address, the director of Jewish Sacred Aging and the host of these podcasts. Welcome. We are very, very honored and thankful that you're joining us. As you know, these podcasts are designed to really talk about a lot of the revolutions that are taking place within our own aging process and in our own longevity. If you'd like to contact us uh, for ideas, future suggestions for podcasts, just email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com. We're very honored, extremely honored to have with us today on today's uh, Seekers of Meaning podcast, uh, Dr. Lawrence Hoffman, the Emeritus Professor of Liturgy, Worship, and Ritual at the Hebrew Union College, uh, New York City, uh, also the co-founder of Synagogue 2000. Which I remember very well. Um, Larry, it's really, really a pleasure and an honor to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Richard. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, it's, it's our honor, believe me. Um, there's so many things I want to talk about, but you, you are, as I've told congregations, the leading expert in our opinion of, of, on worship and liturgy and sacred space. Um, the first question I was, I, I really want to pose to you is really based upon looking a little bit backward. Um, I'm coming up to our 50th anniversary of my classes, uh, ordination way back in the dark ages of 1972. I remember well. <laughs> um, I'm glad you remember. <laughs> but what was, what's been very, very fascinating to our, our generation is we, we've lived through so many of these internal revolutions within liberal Judaism. One of them is I, is I really believe that the worship revolution, um, the style of worship in many ways that I walked into at Temple Soleil in Canoga Park, California in 1972, which, and the synagogue doesn't even exist anymore, is very, very different than a lot of the stuff that, that's going on now. Um, you've studied this, you, you speak about this all the time, you've written books about it. Could you just riff a little bit? What was the what was the underlying factor on, on all this shift? What was going on? Uh, you have to think of uh, worship as uh, something broader than what it really is. Um, I was trained as a liturgist, which meant I went to Hebrew Union College, got my doctorate there, and I learned the history of prayer. And everybody thought liturgy was a matter of text. So if I only knew the history and development of all the prayers by God, I would know everything. At one point, it occurred to me that uh, even if I knew it all, then what? What was the point? And at some point it occurred to me that actually you have to see the text of, of the prayers as really a script. And you have to understand worship as actually a sacred drama. In our case, the sacred drama of the Jewish people. But the same thing for any other worship of any other group. So what we do when we gather in worship essentially is we, as it were, um, suspend our disbelief. That's a term that's taken from uh, from uh, study of literature. When you read a good book, you suspend your disbelief and you pretend that you're in the year 3050, if it's a sci-fi or something like that, and you go with the flow. The same thing happens in movies. So the same thing happens when we go to worship. We suspend our disbelief and we enter into the story of our people. We enter into the story of who we are. And since this is about meaning, we enter into the possibility that there's meaning to be found in this sacred drama. Better way of thinking about, the, about it is not just a drama, but possibly even an opera, since music is so central to it. So by entering into this drama, we get a sense of who we are. It's like, it's like a, 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 
It's like a reflector, a mirror on our existence. Now, as long as our lives don't change dramatically, then the old mirror works. We enter into the drama and we can suspend our disbelief. But at some point, we can't do that anymore. Because what we see portrayed before us and with us is something so different from what we are that it's as if the mirror cracks. And here we are in that mirror trying to see ourselves in it, but we look very strange. At some point, if things are just, you know, minor, minor changes in our identity, then we revise our prayer book. We add a different kind of music here and there, you know, we tinker at the edges. But at some point, things change dramatically. And then, then we need to revise the entire opera, the entire sacred drama. So that's what was happening when I, when you actually went to school at Hebrew Union College. We were already in the phase of doing that. What had happened to make us change that? Well, first of all, um, the world itself had changed. Uh, we, we, we were at an era, in an era when it was post-World War II era. Um, up until then, when our worship was founded, did you know, it was back really before World War II. But with World War II and then in Jewish history, the Shoah and then the state of Israel and the sense of Jews now being fully at home in America, the anti-Semitism from before World War II was gone. Suddenly, we were altogether different, and everything had to change. So basically, what was going on is that we were changing the sacred drama of our people because we were writing our new uh, chapter and what that drama is. You know, you probably remember studying Bible once upon a time and discovering that there were various editors of the thing. And as each editor took it over, they didn't just add a chapter when they went back over the stuff that earlier editors had done, and they re-edited what had been edited. So when you write a new chapter in your history, you can't just say, oh, well, I'll add chapter 52 or whatever it happens to be. You go over it and you say, well, I don't like that anymore. And you go over it and you say, I want to emphasize this part, not that part. Then you discover the theme song of what you were like maybe 50 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago. And you say, wait a minute, why did we leave this out? I want that. That's what we were doing. And so what we've done is we have overhauled our worship to accord with the new identity of who we are as, in our case, reformed, liberal American Jews, with Israel now also part, part and parcel of the Jewish picture, and trying to figure out what is life like now after the Shoah and how can we move forward in a new era. And now we're in a new stage. We actually need to change things all over again. So I think we're at a second reformation, if you want to use that term. Well, you, you've written, um, I think, um, in Beyond the Text, which is one of your books, uh, the the um, probably the detrimental impact of suburban living on um, American Jewish life, and perhaps then by extension American Jewish worship, liberal worship. Do you still see that? Because um, that Beyond the Text is, I I I, I forget when you I forget when it came out, but I think it's a an eighties book. Um, has has the have we become so assimilated into the American suburban lifestyle that it that it has taken away our drama and the drama yeah. of worship? Gosh, I better be careful what I write. People actually read it, uh, and <laughs> I actually and this is a long time ago. I don't remember uh, being negative about suburbia, Richard. I mean, I, perhaps I did add something there, but my overall view of things generally is is not pessimistic, but optimistic. That's my normal frame of things. And I tend to accept uh, the fact of where we are and to make the best of it. Now, I don't think, I don't, I do know that I, I had, I had 
criticism of the of the of the, of the uh, suburban synagogue because right. the suburban synagogue wasn't living up to the expectations that we needed. Certainly, Jewish life was changing. Uh, that doesn't mean that I uh, negated the possibilities of suburbia or the possibilities of exurbia or the possibility of moving back into urbia, if I can make that term. Doesn't matter to no, me. No, no, no. I mean, I'm trying right. to say as life changes, our worship changes with it. We have to, we have to, to make the changes that are necessary. That's all. But I might have said something negative. I'm happy to talk about that if, if you can remind me. No, it was, it, I, when I, in reviewing, in reviewing and, and beyond the text. That's a good book. <laughs> it is a good book. I read it on occasion page, too. <laughs> well, check out page 166. What does it say? Oh, uh, you talk about, it's a section on the numinous and the search for the numinous. Oh, yes, yes. And I really, in, in the context, in the context, it really is exactly what you're now saying. I know what you mean. There's this disconnect, as you were alluding to, between the drama, which I think is a great word, and, um, sort of like the routine of worship. I mean, I, you, you've been on enough pulpits, uh, and, and as have I, and sometimes you get concerned that the worship service has become pro forma. Yeah. Without any drama. That's great. So, um, first of all, it's important when we compare different eras of worship or different eras of anything that we don't compare the worst of something with the best of something else. That's our common, our common default mode. When we're in change mode, we look at what we don't like about the past, and then we look at the best of what we think the present will be. And we forget about sometimes the past was pretty good, and we forget about sometimes the present is pretty shoddy. So I think we have to look at the best and the worst of the, of the pre-World War II era that, that, uh, that formed our worship. Back then and that, by the way, we were using the Union Prayer Book. Some people actually remember that thin book. It, it was beautifully right. written, actually. The English in it was, was like superb. Uh, and we were trained as rabbis to read it superbly. We, we were, we were trained readers. It said reader and we knew how to read. Um, and so that worship started in the 1890s, actually here with the Union Prayer Book, started in the middle of the 1890s, and even though it was revised a couple of times up to the 1940s, we still use that one book. That book was built for um, for urban life, and it was built for grand synagogues. In grand synagogues, uh, you had an organ, you could fill the entire room with the sound. Uh, I also think of it as the, as the worship for an industrial era. Sometimes you can, you can equate worship uh, modes with different economies, actually. And so the economy of the late 19th century, that we still don't forget the, the era of the grand factories and, and the Gilded Era, right? So that era, up to, including up till World War One and even back past World War One for a while, that was the industrial era. You know, you could buy uh, a Model T Ford in any color you wanted as long as it was black. So the Union Prayer Book, uh, brought us to our best and when it was at its best and uh, it was a grand beautiful service uh, but it always one size fits all just like the model t you rise together you sit together you speak together most of you listen together and everybody looks the same and every synagogue service is exactly the same and the rabbis bring the same black robe with maybe a white thing that looks sort of like a talit and we kind of read in the same sort of way that we are taught to at the college at its best that was a superb sense of the sacred, the sacred as Rudolf Otto, the great, the great theologian in Germany, 
uh, described as a sense of the sacred. That when you were there, you had that grand music, and you were thought this was magnificent. I mean, doesn't get better than this. Now, the worst was, of course, sometimes it didn't. That didn't happen. Sometimes the rabbis read in rather a boring way, and sometimes the music wasn't perfect, and sometimes the singer wasn't great, and often the singers, we didn't use cantors back then, the singers didn't know much Hebrew, and then we didn't have much Hebrew anyway. So sometimes it left a lot to be desired. Now let's skip ahead. We move now into the, into the post-World War II era. Well, first of all, the economy has changed. We're now in the service economy. In the service economy, people want to be served. They have a sense that they matter. It's not one size fits all. They don't want a black model T Ford. They want five different kinds of Buicks in three different styles at different levels or whatever the case was. Uh, and so now they have a sense that, gee, you should serve me. I'm, I'm different. I'm not like everyone else. Similarly, uh, we're no longer all in the same kind of synagogue. And we move to the suburbs where we can't afford great big organs and where nobody wants to hear them anyway. And now they don't want to hear the rabbi just read, and they don't want a voice just singing as if uh, we're not listening, as if, as if we're just taking it all in. They want engagement. So the new kind of worship featured engagement. It featured uh, rabbis coming down from the pulpit and speaking with people. It featured very prominently cantors, because cantors were able to access the musical tradition of the Jewish people. It featured more Hebrew, which put us in touch with Israel. That was all part of our identity. So uh, we were rediscovering tradition, but we were just rediscovering tradition, not just rote and not mindlessly, but because we wanted a greater sense of what Jewish tradition was all about. We wanted to feel at one with world Jewry, and we, we already did because of the Shoah. And now we knew we had lost so many of our brothers and sisters, and we wanted to feel at one with Israel. We wanted a sense of, of what Jewish peoplehood could be like in an America where we were for the first time even allowed to move into suburbs. It's not like we just moved in and no one noticed us. These were Judenrein. Jews weren't allowed in those places. Now, in that kind of now economy, in that kind of Jewish freedom, in the sense of what the world, what world Jewry is, in a sense that we need to find ourselves for a new era, uh, we had to come up with a new kind of worship. It is true that the suburbia did in the old reform worship, but I don't necessarily think that was all bad. It was just a new chapter, that's all. But of course, we had to learn about it. So what do we do? We do the kinds of things I've talked about, but now we don't want to compare the best and the worst either. So I'm not going to say that suburban worship was wonderful and, 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 and classical reform was terrible. Not at all. They're both wonderful or terrible. It depends upon how it's carried out. It depends upon the, 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 the musical forces that are available depends upon how you engage people, how you rearrange the room. The fixed seating of the old synagogue was perfect because, you know, you were just the, the passive observer taking it all in, standing together, sitting together, listening to the music and so on. But now you had movable seats. Movable seats allows you to get people engaged and involve them. Now you didn't just have hidden choirs in, in, the, in, in, in some room where you didn't know where they were. Instead, you could see the people singing, you could sing along with them. Now you had a guitar, which was taboo in the old days. The thing about the organ is that it fills a space. It was perfect for European worship, filled the entire space. The thing about a, about a guitar is it demands people to sing with it. Otherwise, it just sounds tinny. So. Um, we then developed this new kind of worship. At its best, 
it accessed God no less than the old kind of worship. It was a different understanding of God. I probably say in that book, I know I've said it elsewhere, it was Martin Buber's kind of God. So Martin Buber understands that we know God in relationship. So it's not as if God is simply coming down from on high like the angels on the ladder, you know, in Jacob's dream. God now sits beside you. You look at your neighbor. You, you put your arms around one another. You're in a healing service that Debbie Friedman began so brilliantly for us. Uh, she died, unfortunately, so young, so much before her time. But but she had she had access to this sort of thing, figured it out. We tried it in Synagogue 2000. So when you're doing a healing service, for example, you know who you're thinking about. And you put your arms around someone. And, it, you know, I used to say it's like American davening, going back and forth instead of going like this, up and down. So, but, but that could be God too. When you look in someone's eyes and you see that you're human and they're human, and you have that sudden sense that you are, that you are somehow seeking God together, you might find God sort of in there, in, in, in between the two of you. So it could be just as profound. Unfortunately, it can also be banal. And uh, unfortunately, I look now to worship around us, and I, I think a lot of it has become banal. You know, we even when we're doing the right stuff, but we're used to it. Now we have a band. We didn't have bands back then, right? I mean, right. things have changed. I love bands. It's terrific. I like to I like to be happy the same as the next person. Yay! Joyous. Shabbat should be joyous. But once you heard the band or the same music for five years, eight years, ten years, and once you say, "Oh yeah, it's band time," well, we're all joyous. But then you say, "What happened to God?" I could do this somewhere else. This is just a hootenanny. And then you discover who the people are worshiping there. If we're honest, most of the people in the synagogue today aren't aging. I'm fall for aging. I'm it. I'm doing it. But, uh, and, and what you're doing is nothing short of brilliant. I must, I must say that to you because it is. Thank uh, you. Thank it you. it Thank is really one of the most critical things for our time. Thank but you. Thank you. I look around me and I'd like to see some younger people too. So we need, we are in an era when we need a new kind of worship and, uh, we're going to have to be revolutionary. Can I say a word about revolutionary? Um, you got me, I guess. In, in the, the beautiful thing about reform is that reform emerged in Western Europe at a time when Jews were leaving Judaism in masses. They were converting to, they were being baptized because that's the way you left. It wasn't a secular society. It was a Christian society. And so a large number of Jews, like Heinrich Heine, for example, who converted because of his ticket to success in, in, in German culture, they were all leaving. They had no use for, they had no use for the orthodoxy that they saw. I'm not bashing orthodoxy. Let me make that clear. I think modern orthodoxy arose as a response to that, just as reform did. But I'm just going to now talk about reform because that's, that's who I am. And that's what I know best. Reform took the position that as people were leaving, there were large numbers of peoples, let's say on the, on the margins, who could just as easily leave. Reform Judaism saved those people and saved Judaism. Because they spoke to those people in their idiom. They said, we understand you want the vernacular. You understand that we want sermons. You want to hear a, a, a religious a message that's profound from the prophets and so on. And, and that's how our worship emerged. 
And then we had all the classical worship that I talked about, classical reform with great music. You know, Look, Franz Liszt, who was no friend of the Jews, used to go to synagogue because he wanted to hear the cantor in, in Vienna. He, he was that good. So we performed that sort of thing. I like to say the Shema Yisrael that we sing is actually is actually a waltz. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai You get the idea. That's because it started in Vienna, and that was the, that was the music of the day. We brought people then from the margins to the center by changing the options of what the center might be. The same thing now is true today. We once again, as Reformed Jews, are living on the margins. But we see now people are not converting out, but they're just leaving. They're becoming secular. Or they have no use for what the synagogue is. And in order to reach them, we are going to have to be as revolutionary as the people who were revolutionary when they began the Reform Movement. So I think what we are in now is a rerun of the 19th century calling upon us to be bold and brave and risk-taking and to change our worship in ways that we've never before even considered and try out new things. When, by the way, you're at the margins of society, you are naturally going to be attacked or the people who see you as pandering to the margins. Or they will say, you're helping people leave when just the opposite is the case. I'm not for pandering to people. But I am all for understanding what the current moment calls us to do in order to speak to the spiritual malaise that people feel. Find meaning in your terms here on this on, on this podcast. Larry, the, you, you allude to this revolution. So part of the revolution in the last couple of years has been, uh, because of the pandemic, uh, this um, embrace of electronic worship and, and teaching, uh, you know, the, the Zoom machine. Uh, it, and and most of us, you know, who, who understand that this is not going away. This is part of who we are now for the rest of this is part of Jewish worship and education. How how would you suggest to the congregations really make the best use of um, the electronic revolution in worship? Um, you're correct in your analysis of of the time. Uh, when I when I talk about the Ford cars, you know, and the economy, another way of looking at it is technology. A changing technology always determines worship. There are two things that actually make worship possible. One is what I call technological competence. And with technological competence comes a different social competence, the way we can be with one another. So, for example, in antiquity, when, when our people were not all super literate, uh, it was an oral society. And so in an oral society, prayer was made up on the spot. It's hard for us to imagine. We think the prayers texts go back all the way to, you know, Sinai or something like that. But in fact, in the first and second century, third century, all the way to the fourth century, probably, people made up prayers in a greater and lesser extent. And so to go to worship then was kind of your t entertainment. You would say, oh, there's a great rabbi or great cousin or something in such and such place. Let's go take in what's going on in Shabbat over there. Uh, but didn't get the same thing uh, from one week to the next. That's because they use oral competence. That's an oralized oral worship when you don't depend on the written word. The written word comes into being primarily after the book is available. And so the first prayer books come, av come available only in the ninth century. 
and then of course they get they get they get published and now uh, leaders of prayer the rabbis have prayer books the cantors have prayer books so now worship is going to change now they're going to worry about doing it right but you still can't re people memorize what the words are the big change takes place though with printing because with printing everybody gets a prayer book when everybody gets a prayer book then it's all going to be the same and you get what orthodoxy is today where you worry about the, about the exact words i don't want to hear you the cantors isn't nothing different than what i've got in my prayer book Theologically, Kabbalah comes into being at the very same time. And Kabbalah, since they've got printed texts to work from, Kabbalah worries about how you can find meaning in this letter and that word and how the letters of this word add up to the letters of that word and so on. So now you have a theology that underscores the, 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 the um, technology. The technology impacts also how people are together. You couldn't, for example, in an oral area even have a committee. There's no way you could agree on a time. There's no way you could tell someone a mile or two away when to be there. You had very few meetings and nobody took minutes. How's that? Because nobody could write. So then, of course, what's good? What good is it to pass regulations? Each rabbi's on his own in those days. By the time you get to the Middle Ages, of course, that's not the case. Now you can have a set of books and everybody just follows it once the once technology of print comes about. So now you have the greatest technological change ever since the discovery of the Gutenberg Bible in print. Now you have <clears throat> the, the, you have electronic communication, and that that's been with us for some time. COVID simply exacerbated the the, the, the growth and uh, and the change, and so the time is now out of joint. We've been pushed forward at, at such a pace that we have not kept up with it ourselves. So your question is very well put. What will what is the new technology, and how does that allow us to meet differently? How does that give us different social competence? We know a few things, but we know very little. Number one, we still don't know what this technology will become. It's still new. Zoom is not very old. Uh, you now have a sophisticated platform here. I have no idea what it'll be like in ten years, but it'll be more sophisticated than this for sure. And Zoom will someday sound like outdated, like oh, you remember Xerox? I remember when we went to the Xerox store, you know. So uh, we'll have to wait and see how the technology drives things. In terms of how we can meet, though, this now gives us worldwide access to people all over. And it gives us access to people in a, in a, in a very um, um, intimate way. I mean, I'm not even sure where, you're, where, you're, where you are at the moment. For all I know, you've got a phony background and you're sitting in Eretz Israel and you're going to go on, you're about to go and swim at a lot uh, when we're done. It doesn't not matter. Hardly. hardly. But you could be, right? And I could I could, be, you right? don't know where I am. I mean, I could be sitting on the North Pole. So there was a survey done some time ago on evangelical preachers, uh, and people thought they these are they were they were zoom they're not zooming they were broadcasting into TV through TV into people's homes and everyone said that's not a community. Well, someone did a survey of that. Turns out it is a community. The people who were at home were actually being told touch the TV screen. They get up from their chair, they touch the TV screen, and the preacher would say, "I feel your touch." And then when they were all done, they phoned one another and talked about the worship. So we could see that you could have a community online already, even though the sophistication of the of, of the of the the medium still almost nil. Now we have more sophisticated media. So we're gonna have now the equivalent of two kinds of congregations, if you like, 
there'll be people who are in person and there'll be people who are at various degrees of distance to the congregation. And we have a good question as to how we're supposed to handle that. Some congregations are experimenting with actually using two congregations. Uh, other congregations are having difficulty with it, but we're still at the very beginnings of it. I don't, I don't presume to know the final answer for what it will be, but I do know it changes. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, Hasidic story, an old Hasidic story, which you, you probably remember. It. Hasid says uh, to his Rebbe, "What, what can we learn from new kinds of technology?" And the Rebbe says, well, you know, he says, from the telephone, he says, you learn that what is said here gets heard up there. Right? So you can learn sorts of things. When the, what about the telegraph? In the telegraph, you can learn that every word should be chosen carefully and every word is counted. So what do we learn from our technology today? You know, I think we learn that we're a worldwide community. We learn that, that what we say here really is heard all over. It means that we need to take into consideration really a very much more um, sophisticated, but not just sophisticated, um, a more profound understanding of humanity. Among yeah. the things that have been going on is that we've been discovering, I mean, I think anyway, there's no such thing as a Jewish truth that isn't a universal truth. We are here for humanity. You look what's going on in the war now. We're for the first time, you know, this terrible war in Ukraine. We're watching it on TV. And I'm discussing it with friends in Israel and friends in, in England, all over the globe. So how do we have global worship? And yet, at the same time, we don't want to give up the intimacy of actually being in one place. One of our great challenges will be to develop worship that is so, so moving that the people can come will do so because they're not just reliving old times, but that they're excited about about aging in new time. So before we start running out of time, um, uh, Larry, I just want to mention, I, I want to ask you one last question. Sure. Uh, you talk a lot about this in The Art of Public Prayer, mm -hmm. um, another great book. Thank you. Um, and it is something... Um, one of the most requested workshops that we do in Jewish sacred aging has to do with new rituals and this explosion of creative uh, rituals, a lot of times driven by boomers who really want something sacred as they, at all these new life stages that we're going through. And you write extensively about the power of ritual. And I think I, 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 I want to know if you think in these times with so much going on and with longevity as well the power of ritual what is the power of religious ritual the power of ritual is this possibility of putting together all the art forms and surrounding us with the artistic expression what we know deep inside but cannot express in the simple language of everyday life. You and I can have a conversation about what it's like to be sick. We can have a conversation about, a, about how we need to feel hope. And all of that can be very moving if I'm in touch with you on a deep level. Let us assume that we're sitting next to one another, we're friends after all, but even if we're not, even if we're strangers, if we touch that common humanity between us, that can be profound. But you put that into a ritual, 
And for, as I said, at this moment, you suspend your disbelief because at this moment, it's as if God really is present. And mm -hmm. the music is filling you and surrounding you, and you're lost. And you find yourself crying, and you can't understand why exactly. And the poetry moves, moves you. And you listen to everybody reading it together, or somehow the person reading it to you is including you in such a way. And the space encloses you, encapsulates who you are, what you see, what you hear. It all comes together. There is no finer way to touch the human soul than to, than to activate all of our senses and to activate them in such a way that it touches our understanding of the sacred, which is what we began with. Ritual is the way we do it. Well, you know, um, I, you, have, you have touched generations of our colleagues. Um, in a variety of, in so many different ways. I, 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 and before we close, I remember when I went through the doctor of ministry program at HUC and you taught, you were one of my teachers. In fact, you were my thesis advisor. Um, um, the, I remember one, one lecture that you were giving on philosophy and liturgy and it was poetry. I remember a group of us just sat there. We put our pens down. We couldn't take any notes because the power of what you were saying, both verbally and but visually the way you were painting a picture um and I, I remember to this day so i want to thank you for the gifts that you have given so many of our colleagues and congregations uh and i just want to wish you just continued good health and 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 peace in your life and just keep doing what you're doing because you're a gift so thank you very much thank you very much for joining us on today's seekers of meaning you're very kind thank you it was an honor to be with you Thank you, Larry. To all of you, thank you very, very much for joining us on today's edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Um, and if you would like to help us continue the work of these podcasts, if you go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com and scroll down, you'll see a conveniently located donate button and it'll allow you to make a tax-free donation so that we can continue our work. Seekers of Meaning is produced in the broadcast center of Lubetka Media Company here in beautiful southern New Jersey, and a big shout out, as usual, to our producer, Steve Lubetkin. Again, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address, and I look forward to greeting you again on our next Secrets of Meaning podcast and TV show from Jewish Sacred Aging. In the meantime, stay safe, everybody. Be kind. Take care. Shalom.